All right. Welcome, everybody. This is the Construction and Mining Podcast. I'm your host, Mac. Today's episode is called The ABCs of Blasting and Mining. I'm joined by our guest today, Nathan Rouse of Dino Nobel. Nathan is a principal blasting consultant with Dino. He finds himself traveling across North America helping solve site-specific problems for mine and quarry clients. Today, we're going to talk about blasting in surface and underground mining applications, as well as how technology is being infused into the industry. So Nathan, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Mac. Glad to be here, and hello to everybody who's listening. We, we initially got to know each other about half a kilometer underground. I was an Uber driver at the time, helping you get around the underground mine, <laughs> visit different workings, and now here we are on the podcast. Yeah, world's first underground Uber driver. I think we we could come up with a new business model there. Oh, oh, definitely. But I think a lot of people are kind of curious how a lot of people a lot of people get started in mining. So, could you kind of take us through your early days of your career and how you got started in the blasting profession? Yeah, sure. Um, and I don't know how common mine mine is. It seems like most of the people in the blasting industry they got started, it was, it was in their family or they got started young and uh, it was an accident. Uh, you actually meet a lot of people in the industry where they, they never planned to be in the blasting industry and it just sort of happened to them. In a way, that's what happened to me. I went to engineering school in Missouri and had no idea what mining is and ended up in the mining engineering program. And they have um, probably the best blasting program in the country there. So ended up getting into blasting. And uh, when I made it out into industry after school, I didn't quite end up in a blasting role, but was lucky enough that we got enough projects in the drilling and blasting side of things that I was able to uh, get a foothold in that aspect of the industry that I get the most enjoyment out of. So you, you went to school and then you got a foothold in the industry and started working right away or? Yeah, so I went to uh, the school I went to was for mining engineering, and so when I graduated, I actually joined a consulting firm, and that firm didn't really do anything in the drill and blast industry. It was more on the permitting side. Uh, we did some construction engineering work uh, and and mine engineering work, and then we ended up getting a couple of blasting projects here and there uh, through that work. So. A lot of engineers, though, end up working for a producing mine or in the construction industry, and they rotate around in short-term mine planning, long-term mine planning, do some drill and blast engineering. So a lot of engineers in the industry end up getting their hands uh, or feet wet in the blasting side. Um, it's a little harder probably from the consultant standpoint. We just kind of got, I would say, lucky and in the right place at the right time for a couple projects. Luckily, I was able to do a lot of field work as well. So there's a lot of aspects to mining. How did you kind of hone in on becoming now a blasting consultant with with Dino? Right. So as I mentioned, I started out doing a lot with permitting. And uh, the biggest project, it was actually a company before Dino, my first company. I worked with a small firm called Morgan Worldwide, who was purchased by a company called Respec in 2014 uh, and worked with them until just last October. So uh, a lot of what I learned actually came from the work we did there because I've only been with Dino since October. Um, but we started out doing a lot of, a lot of work with, with permitting. And then we ended up 
the the first project that I worked on that was a lot of field work was an underground mine development job in Missouri. And with that job, I was really lucky because it was a small scale mine and we were able to do engineering work for a variety of things, uh, including uh, raised boring, decline development, ventilation, rock mechanics, all sorts of stuff. So uh, we got to do a lot there and obviously some blasting stuff while we were at it. And then um, fast forward a couple of years and the biggest the biggest step we took was I had a, a buddy of mine join me, Tristan Worsey, at the company. And we both were able to convince management to let us get into drilling and blasting and do that full-time. So we started doing that full-time around 2015, 2016, um, where we basically ran uh, a startup business within the consulting company which kind of acted like an incubator and we were able to do our own marketing and business development and bring in projects uh, in the drilling and blasting side of things. Did you grow up with any mentors in the industry that have helped you get where you are today? Yeah, I, th I think you have to, um, or everyone has, whether they, whether they realize it or not. So what uh, I'd say probably my first couple of mentors in blasting and mining, I didn't come from the industry, would have been in, so it would have been in college. Um, Paul Wersey and Dre Jason Baird were two professors of mine on the blasting side and um, learned a ton from, continued to learn a ton from and keep in touch with. And uh, then when I actually got into industry and started working in consulting, uh, John Morgan ran that company and was able to position me in some places where kind of sink or swim um, situations. And a, I was able to get a lot of experience both within the country and internationally around the world. And he also allowed me to work with Tristan to start that business where maybe a lot of people probably wouldn't have allowed us to do that. And I'd say it's, it's that. And then we had a great team of, of people between Tristan and myself and then, uh, Matt Slezak and Nick Morande that we were able to build, a our, our own side of the business. So yeah, I definitely had some great mentors and still all of them I keep in touch with. Um, and since then, uh, also wanted to mention Braden Lusk too, who's my current, um, current boss with Dino Nobel, but had also worked with him while he was a professor at Kentucky and Missouri, uh, teaching blasting courses. So he had his own company and was able to bring, bring us in on some projects that, and get us some, uh, um, experience that we might not would have otherwise got while we were growing our own business. What were some of the, the most valuable things they passed along to you? Like little snippets of, of advice or, or, or phrases that you still carry with you today? Um, well, there's probably a few. We always, we always go from the aspect of you work hard and play harder. So uh, one of the things that we do a lot is, is we try and keep in touch and network with everyone that we've been in contact with the industry. Um, it, it basically, uh, we have a ton of friends and, and you want to, we, we treat people as friends. And, and one of the biggest pieces of advice from a consulting standpoint or providing a service to a client that I learned is when you do work with a client, basically act like you're in their company or you're part of their, their team and uh, you become a valuable part of that team. And that one's always stuck with me. 
the, the mining in industry is no doubt huge and there's many aspects to it and, and facets of it, but you're, you're pretty niche down in just blasting. Could you kind of provide an overview of what blasting is for our listeners who haven't been exposed to the industry and have really may not know nothing or know very little about blasting in mining? Sure. Sure. So there's a, there's a couple of uh, well-known sayings out there in the mining industry. Uh, one of which is it, if it can't be grown, it has to be mined. And that, that's true. So if, if you can't grow something in agriculturally, then you have to mine it. And in most cases, to mine something uh, like rock or a mineral, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty hard. So you can't break it mechanically or physically. You have to break it uh, with, with explosives, uh, which they call chemical breakage. So that process is really required, you know, for people to have cell phones, to build houses and streets and uh, pretty much anything uh, construction-wise, everything we take for granted today, vehicles, airplanes, fuel, it all has to be extracted from the earth. And to do that, we have to blast it. And blasting is very much a science nowadays. It started out as an art. There's still some art to it, but... Um, Basically, to blast rock, you have to you have to clear clear the rock out that you want to break and crush, and you drill holes, and then you load the holes with explosives, and then on top of the explosive in the hole, you put inert material that doesn't blast. So you actually contain the explosive energy, and it makes it a very economical way to to break uh, fragment the rock and and move the rock so you can dig it and then do secondary mechanical crushing with it so it's a vital a vital part of the mining industry today and uh and it will be for the for years to come i think we could both agree that you can break up mining into underground and surface mining is there a big sure. difference in technique with the way they blast underground versus the way they blast on surface it, the concepts are all the same with blasting and it's, it's pretty simple, but a lot of people don't, don't make the connection, I think. So, uh, let's take, and if we're just talking about mining, um, surface blasting, you know, there's the skies above you and everything's open and clear and you can see everything. Um, probably the biggest difference is that we, when we do drilling and blasting underground is you, you can't actually see the blast. You can't see it happen. You can't see the results. And a lot of troubleshooting and improvement with blasting comes from, from observe, observing it and seeing what happens during the, the process of the blast detonating. So I'd say underground, and, and I lean a bit more towards underground and where I, I have the most interest because I think it's, um, it's a bit more difficult and harder to harder to come up with good designs underground. But at the end of the day, you're drilling holes, you're loading them with explosives, and you're breaking rock. So in the simplest of terms, they're similar, but at the same time, there's, there's different problems or different hurdles you have to jump for uh, in each industry. And that that kind of leads into your role with Dino Noble, is you're consulting for a lot of underground mining clients and you're effectively problem solving any issues they have because obviously there's lots of things that can go right and go wrong with blasts underground. Could you kind of expand a little bit about how you kind of go about solving problems and really just being a, a detective? Yeah. Um, I've, 
for the last few years now, my career has seemed to have been doing that type of work, um, troubleshooting or root cause analysis, if you will. So uh, a lot of, a lot of cases when there's issues with the blast, um, a lot of times you can just, if you haven't done anything to plan ahead, you can just kind of look at it and say, well, it didn't go well. And it's probably because of such and such. But what I typically do is go into a site and collect a lot of data and information. Um, so the first thing I usually do is collect information on what I would call a baseline. So what is the site currently doing? Um, and with blasting, we look at we look at design, drilling, and explosives loading design. We look at uh, the explosive or the drilling itself, uh, how the drills are set up, if there's drilling inaccuracies. So with drilling, we can we can use survey equipment to survey hole locations because. With blasting, explosives distribution in the rock is key. And to distribute the explosives well, you have to distribute the drilling well. So typically we design drilling on patterns um, a certain distance from uh, what we call a free face. So with I'm going to backtrack a little bit, but when you blast, you have uh, – in surface blasting, to simplify things, you have a bench. So you're going into the ground. Let's say you, you go into the ground – 15 meters, um, dig out a 15 meter deep pit. So the walls of the pit are the free face and you're blasting from that top bench into the pit. Um, so you want the drills to be equally spaced from that wall and equally spaced side to side. So we go in and we survey the, the whole locations where they've drilled. And then we can actually survey down the hole and survey where the hole goes. So holes should be straight. They're not designed to be curved. But in some cases, that happens either due to an error in the drill setup or uh, geology being a major factor. When you have a rock mass that has a lot of stresses in it or joints or other discontinuities and bedding planes, or if you have like uh, volcanic intrusions in your rock where you drill from one rock into a harder rock, you might... Uh, where that discontinuity is between the rocks, the drill might follow that. So there's a lot of reasons drilling can deviate, which then affects the results of the blast. And then after drilling, uh, when you charge the holes with explosives, you put in a detonator, which when we do a blast, we have a number of holes per blast, and we want those holes to shoot in a certain order with a shoot certain time between them. So we have detonators that do that. Nowadays, a lot of detonators are electronic, so they have little computer chips in them with the timing. And then we have a primer charge, which is uh, maybe a half a kilogram charge or 100 gram size of high explosive that the detonator goes into. And then we put that in the hole, and then on top of that we put um, a bulk explosive, which uh, let's say a common one, for example, would be a mixture of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. So about 94% ammonium nitrate, which is like um, uh, basically like fertilizer, but um, it's manufactured with a bit more constraint to it and how they make it. And then fuel oil, uh, about 6% of that. So uh, diesel fuel. So um, that's a common bulk explosives that you put in the hole as well. So we we observe how the holes are loaded because different types of explosives require different types of loading um, practices. And then 
After that, we can also measure the blast during the detonation. We can measure the velocity that the explosive in each hole detonates. We can use seismographs to measure ground vibration caused by the explosives. We can use high-speed video cameras, uh, things like that. And then after the blast detonates, we can use uh, technology like drone technology or photo technology to actually estimate the sizing of the fragmentation. We can also use photogrammetry from drones or from cameras to, or 3D LIDAR scans to map the face. So, and we can map the muck pile shape and everything like that. So there's a lot of things that we can look at, um, a, a lot of different aspects of the process that, you know, if one thing goes wrong or one thing's changed, uh, it could affect the results. So we do a lot of data collection and analysis to try and determine if a site has something going on that they don't really want to happen. We, we can use that information to point the finger. Are there any particular problems that stick out as recurring or you see them lots within the industry? Yeah. I mean, from an engineering standpoint, we love drilling to be perfect and it hardly ever is. Um, but what you, what you see is you see, uh, I consider myself a drill and blast engineer, right? Because we do stuff with drilling and blasting. But a lot, a lot of times the drillers point fingers at the blasters and the blasters point fingers at the drillers. And I think anyone you talk to that's involved in the blasting industry will agree with that statement. Um, but and, and a lot of times it's both. So the drilling has to be right or you could have uh, operational issues downstream if, if the drilling's a little off. Um, maybe the drilling's on, but the design's off. And so the drillings, uh, the drill holes are too far apart. Um, so there's constraints like that, uh, loading. It could be the, the, the powder guys, the powder crew loading the holes and taking shortcuts that they shouldn't be making. Um, but it, it seems like wherever you go, it's always something a little different. Uh, there's no smoking gun where you can go into a place and say this is probably what it is without having actually set your foot on site and seen what's going on and talked to the the people involved because um, they're they're the most in, I'd say I'd say outside of the with the instrumentation the the drillers and the blasters and the designing engineers everyone's equally important and it's equally important to to talk to all of them and and have discourse with them so you can see what what they're doing and what their process is and uh, what their side of the story is basically. So, uh, you know, when everyone points fingers at each other, everyone's a little bit right, but uh, it's, they've also got, uh, you know, that everyone's got a little something they can improve, I guess. There's always continuous improvement. And finding the solutions to these issues is incredibly important, especially when you're dealing with gold bearing, silver bearing, copper bearing rock you want to make sure you're you're getting complete extraction of that whether it be underground or on surface yeah that's correct i, I feel like um with mining operations it's a lot of times especially in the aggregates industry that's such a low margin industry um but really any mining the it's very easy to pull out the explosives costs as uh um part of the the cost of mining so with mining you have uh, development costs, um, drilling costs, blasting explosives costs. You have um, excavating costs, truck haulage costs, road maintenance costs, 
mechanical processing costs and, and so on. So you have all these costs, but it's really easy to try and reduce the costs of explosives or reduce the costs of drilling uh, just by drilling less holes per uh, volume of rock and loading less explosives per volume in rock. And one of the things that we look at as a team with, with uh, Dino Nobel, with, um, I'm a part of Dino Consult, their consulting arm, is we look, we try and look at the entire mining process from, um, from even before drilling. Now we don't go all the way to exploration per- permitting necessarily because we're looking at an operation, uh, day to day cost, but we'll look at, um, like dozing to clear an area. Let's say it's a surface operation, uh, oper- uh surface quarry. They might have to doze some, a few, a meter or two of dirt off the top of the limestone they're mining. And then once they've dozed that off, they have to drill the holes to shoot. And then once they've drilled the holes, they load it with explosive blast. And then once they've done that, they they muck the they dig the rock out, load trucks, and haul it with trucks, dump that in a crusher, and then the crusher conveys it to secondary processing and then the final stockpiles. So we try and look at the whole process because if you look at the drill and blast costs, like I was saying, it's easy to try and reduce those. But reducing drill and blast costs usually have a, has a downstream impact where if you reduce your cost to a point, you start to get uh, poor rock breakage. Um, you might have a lot of oversized rock in your blast. And what oversized rock is is rock that's difficult for the loader to pick up. It's too big for the trucks and it won't fit in the crushers. So then that's additional secondary costs down the road with more explosives or you have to bring in a mechanical pecker uh, to, to, or a hammer to break the rock and then you can load it. So, uh, you know, if you spread your drilling out, you can get oversized like that. You can have really uneven high walls, which then adds to poor uh, or to extra oversize in the subsequent blasts. If your holes are spread too far out, you can also have very uneven floors, which then add to the hauling costs because you have to drive slower. It adds wear and maintenance costs to the equipment. So there's all these downstream costs from blasting. Let's say you increase your blasting costs. uh, You have really smooth floors. You increase your mucking time. You increase your uh, truck haulage time. And then your crusher's working less, so you're using less power, and there's less maintenance on your crusher. So... There's, we, you try and look at it holistically and uh, there's, there's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle where, uh, you know, somewhere around the average where, where, uh, you're not over blasting it, but you're not under blasting it. And then everything else works itself out downstream to be the overall lowest cost. So that's something our team has uh, started looking at recently and, uh, have had some good results with that. And that type of idea and process is not new. It's been around the mining and construction industry for years. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a good thing for sites to look at. Getting into explosives a little bit, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions about how safe modern-day explosives are. I think when people see explosives being loaded, whether it be at a residential site, a mining site, or they see an explosive truck or an explosive sign, some sort of Bugs Bunny cartoon kind of comes into their head about, you know, explosives. And could you kind of elaborate a bit about the safety and integrated into modern day explosives? Sure. Um, 
modern day explosives today, like I was already mentioned, the detonators with computer chips. I mean, we've we've adopted a lot of technologies. Um, explosives are very safe. There's a lot of funny stories that uh, if myself or other people have walked on a blast and and seen um, blasters or other people doing with explosives, you'd be you'd be surprised if you were thinking of of the Bugs Bunny and Wiley e. Coyote. Uh, picture because you can do a lot with them and uh, they're they're very very safe to handle. There are a lot of regulations, uh, national and and state in the U.S., uh, um, Canadian territories, even even some cities have their own uh, regulations and codes for safe handling of explosives. Uh, obviously, you don't want to smoke or anything near them, but. For instance, on highway transport, uh, a lot of times the the vast majority of explosives that are used, the bulk explosives I mentioned, uh, let's use ANFO as an example. A lot of times ANFO is shipped to site separately. So you have ammonium nitrate prills, which is the majority of the explosive, and that's shipped to site as an oxidizer. So it's not even an explosive. Uh, and then once you get to site, you add the fuel oil to make it an explosive. So uh, with the transportation, there's different types of placards you see on trucks, the, the, tri- or the diamond-shaped placards. Orange usually signifies explosives, but uh, when it's shipped as an oxidizer, it's yellow. So you don't even know that explosives are being transported in, or what will be explosives is being transported because at that point, it's technically an, it is an oxidizer. So with the electronic detonators, we can log them and check them and read them. Uh, with a with a logging unit, so we actually have communication with the detonators. Uh, nowadays, they they've come out with wireless wireless detonators. Actually, um, there's a a lot of technology coming out in the blasting industry that that adds to the safety as well. So, we've talked a little bit about technology, and you just mentioned it. I think that's a really interesting point to bring up about you know, technology in the mining industry because the mining industry is this fairly large dinosaur of an industry that has refused to kind of catch up with the rest of society in terms of adopting technology. But now they're on that technology adoption train. What kind of changes have you seen over the past, you know, decade? And what do you see kind of coming to the blasting industry for technology in the next decade? Yeah, uh, kind of a funny story. We put a presentation together because part of that that group that we developed a, a small little drill and blast business, part of that was we made a, a drill and blast reporting software. And one of our comments was uh, the U.S. actually put a man on the moon before our regulations required record keeping of, of blasts. So nowadays, which is pretty funny, we had the technology, we were able to do that, and, and we still didn't require um, – record keeping with blasting but nowadays uh we we have to keep records at least on the surface of each blast so number of holes drilled the the pattern layout the amount of explosives used the day time things like that there's you know over a hundred things that we have to keep track of with each blast so one of the one of the technologies over the last few years has been developed is is electronic record keeping um so you can 
for your blast, you actually can use like a tablet or, or some sort of electronic data logger where you record all the information. It cuts down on calculation errors and stores everything on the cloud. So that type of technology is catching up to modern day. And once you have that data, you can actually analyze it and start using it uh, as data analytics. And uh, that's a pretty powerful tool. So for years, we were collecting all this data. Let's say we blast uh, at a site once or twice a day. Um, that's over, that's two to 300 times a year. And so think of that times 100 pieces of data. That's 20,000 uh, 20, pieces of data. So that's a lot of data. And now, nowadays, you can, you can actually keep track of that data and start tracking it and uh, helping control costs and looking for trends in your information and your practice. And this goes for drone blast contractors or, or mines or construction companies. So that's one, one good uh, improvement in technology. Another on the computer side is just with drone blast design programs. A lot of uh, software is out there now. We're able to do designs with with uh, the real world information. Before we would just say uh, we're shooting a uh, 15 meter high bench, and it has this many holes on it. And now we we have either laser scanners or drones can do photogrammetry, so they can actually take a hundred or so photos of an area and then make a three dimensional model of the area just using the photos, um, which is which is pretty cool because it takes doesn't take much time to do that so you can have a three-dimensional drawing of your bench and you can really uh, dial in the design to to get the results you want and uh, now uh, drills we have smart drills now where they can actually as they're drilling there's sensors on them where they know where they're drilling so the gps they can put the hole within a centimeter of where it needs to be and then as they're drilling they can tell when they're changing into different rock types or they hit a mud seam or a cavity, and it records all this information. And that information can then be transferred to the blasting team, and we can load the hole with, with variable uh, explosives energy. So if you have layers of hardened soft rock, you can actually load your hole so you're blasting the hard rock with more explosive, and then you, you can... Uh, change change the energy in the small rock areas so it's it's blasting with a little less energy and therefore you're not um, over blasting that small rock and you're controlling your costs a little bit in the long run and having more uniform results in your muck pile uh, so all this technology is really feeding into itself and we've it's we're coming a long way and I think the one sites start to adopt a lot of that and it gets going it's going to be a powerful tool. Um, another, another thing I mentioned is just with electronic detonators. So I saw something the other day where there's actually, uh, one manufacturing company that has, uh, wireless detonators. So before we have to tie all the detonators into a single network of wiring and so we can communicate with them all, but now they're able to put detonators in that can be logged by a drone. So they fly a drone over the blast. None of the holes are connected into, uh, a single network they're all separate and they can actually log each log each detonator with a drone so more on the safety side the less time you have men on the bench the better right so yeah there's just there's a lot going on um technology wise and i think with uh just with how open the the global economy is in the world now there's a lot of 
exchanging of ideas and technology that uh, is pretty impressive. Uh, there's something going on. We don't really do it in the U.S. right now, but another technology that, that they're doing in Europe is track and trace. So uh, to go back to the explosive safety question as well as technology is they're able to track with barcodes. They scan and track where every little bit of explosive goes. So I've done some work in France, and when I was there, the guys who drove the, the, the box truck with explosives in it drove up to site, and then they every piece that was – was brought out of the truck, they scanned it, logged it, and it was uh, loaded into the holes. And then what they didn't use, they scanned back onto the truck and then they left. Um, so it's it's uh, pretty impressive tracking that, that some places are doing now too. I find it incredible that we've pretty much gone from a stick of explosives with a fuse initiated by a lighter to now remote and wireless detonators that are controlled by a drone. Yeah, I mean... We, we still do some of the fuse with a lighter too. So uh, don't get me wrong. There's, and the, there's, uh, there's places that, you know, some underground limestone mines still do this where the, the blast is initiated. It's, it's relatively safe, but the blast is initiated with what's called safety fuse and that burns at a certain, a certain rate. So, you know, how long like per meter of, of safety fuse burns at a rate. So you light it and you know about when it's supposed to go, but, uh, most safety regulations build in additional time if there if there was something that happened where not everything detonated or didn't detonate with safety fuse extra time is built into the safety window where you have to wait before you can go look at it again so there are places and i was just this year uh two months ago was at a place where all the shots were initiated by safety fuse so that's still happening um we still use dynamite uh, right now in the united states Dino Nobel has the only operating dynamite manufacturing facility. Um, and honestly, dynamite, dynamite's used in, in some industries, a lot of trenching because it, it performs so well in trenching. But uh, most people think uh, they, you know, they're dynamiting that mountain uh, or that hill. And as a matter of fact, most explosives used nowadays are not dynamite. It's pretty few and far between that it's being used. Where do you kind of see the industry going this, this decade? Are there any predictions for kind of new trends or, or major, you know, shifts in how they do things? Yeah, I think, I think data analytics. Um, I mentioned the smart drill and I mean, they're collecting a, a, a lot of information. And then I mentioned the blast reports and blasting reports and now trucks are, are logging a lot of information about the loading process. So the right now, I think the industry is looking at implementing, like there's so many things you can do with it, but it's, it's difficult to implement it into uh, day-to-day things. So the industry is, I'd say over the next 10 years, this is still going to be happening where sites are implementing. Usually it starts with really big uh, metals mines, surface metal mines seem to be kind of the ones to develop it. Um, so I, I think, I think the, uh, the usage of that data and then the data analytics portion of it and, and big data management. Um, and then I think you'll see, you'll see sites start to get more efficient just through that process. But I would say that that's probably in the drill and blast area. That's probably where a lot of, uh, sites are going to go to. Um, 
you know, a lot of cores and stuff, it, it takes mines a long time to adopt new technology because when you buy a drill, it could go 30 years uh, at a quarry or something. There's some old drills I've seen in, in my area. Um, so, you know, sites like that, it takes a long time, but they're, they're getting there and slowly they'll adopt. Um, we have blast vibration regulations. And in the eighties, when they were introduced, everyone was like, no, that'll never work. And nowadays uh, people fight to keep it. Uh, so, um, technology will, it'll advance. And, um, I think in another, another area that, uh, there'll be some advancement and I'm not really familiar with this area, but if you think of, of places that are difficult to extract minerals, uh, it seems like the ocean floor seems to be a big, uh, future of, of mining and mineral extraction. So, uh, personally don't know much, too much about that, but I'm sure you hear, hear about it. Uh, more in the next 10 years. Are there any pieces of information you wish the general public or anybody kind of working in mining who didn't know about blasting knew about? Anything that could kind of change their perception into more of a positive outlook? Well, if if most people were like me when I went to college, I didn't know a damn thing about mining. Uh, I didn't even realize how prevalent it was or how much we needed it. So I'd say if if you get started in it, just keep an open mind and um, in the mining industry, from an engineering standpoint, probably the worst thing you can do is not get out and get your, get your boots dirty. So usually the advice I give people is to get out in the field as much as you can and get as much experience as you can because there's so much out there. Um, it's helped me a lot. I've done stuff in, in Africa, South America, Europe, the U S Canada, Mexico, surface and underground mining, just, uh, um, just by knocking on a few doors. Uh, so get your boots store dirty and, and work on your network. Even in college, um, you'd be surprised how many people, especially with networks today, keep in touch through their social networks and you might see them 10 years down the road. Um, and you could, uh, a project success could depend on how you treated them in college put it that way. We've, we've covered a lot today, Nathan. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we, we, we wrap it up here? Um, just uh, thanks for letting me on your program, Mac. And uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed the discussion. Well, I really appreciate your time. And I know you're a busy guy. You're working from home like everybody else. But I know that someone or there's a company out there that's going to get value from this and hopefully have some really good takeaways so they can implement themselves or something to kind of think on. If somebody had further questions is there a way they could get in touch with yourself? Yeah, I was actually going to mention that, but I didn't know if it was kosher to do it on the podcast or not. Uh, but yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, um, or my email is uh, nathan.rouse at am.dinonobel.com. And I'm happy to share information or, or answer questions or just have discussions, really. I'll put some of your information in the show notes, so if anyone does have questions, they can reach out to you easily. Sure. Thank you for listening today, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the episode and got some value from, from it today. If you did enjoy it, please share it with somebody who's in the industry or who is looking to get into the industry. We're trying to build this into an educational resource for people to listen to at their leisure. So until next time, we'll see you guys on the next podcast. Thanks for listening.